I'm going to ask David Manley to come. So we've been going through the life of David. If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to 1 Samuel 21? 1 Samuel 21, he'll be reading the first portion of that chapter. Thank you, David. Starting in verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Allah, before, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Thank you, David, for reading that. At least to kind of set our time up well today, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about it just a little bit. And that question is this How long would it take for you to be broken down mentally? emotionally, spiritually, or physically, how long would it take if you were a fugitive? If you were fleeing, if you were on the run, knowing you were being chased down by an enemy who had every resource imaginable at his disposal to take your life? How long before you started breaking down? And maybe some of you Well, you've never been chased and never been a fugitive. Maybe you do know what it's like to be pressed with something that is just almost almost too much to bear, too much to think about. Maybe you've had that press for a week. Maybe, Maybe it's been a month. Maybe it's been longer than a month. Maybe you've known some sort of difficult circumstance that's actually pressed down for six months, maybe for a year, maybe a decade. How long would it take before that press on you began to affect your decision-making ability? How long before you find yourself talking to people and making alliances you never thought you would make? How long before you began to make some shaky decisions? At what point would you just, like after, after running, after fleeing, after dealing with so many difficult things, how, how long before you just want to call it quits and, and be out of it all? I think we have to remind ourselves regularly that we are not reading the story of a superhero or a robot. 
What's very interesting to me in the story of David, there aren't miracles. God records many miracles in the Bible, but not in this story of David. It just reminds us of how human he is. And as we look at this story of David, we need to remember that because the verbs surrounding David's life during this time are things like David fled, David escaped, David ran, David departed, David was pursued. Those are the cluster of verbs that are hanging around his life at this point in time. And as much, though, as this is about David running, this is about God protecting and God preserving David. And we said even at the beginning of this series uh, a month or so ago that the story of David is a story of God's grace that takes place over time. So we don't just get one window into David, we get a lot of his life. And if we let it, and even today, if we let it, it'll point us to Jesus. It's a story of grace that takes place over time that will point us to Jesus. If you're new to this series, if you're just joining us today, welcome to the Middle East, particularly Palestine in about 1000 BC. That's where we are. And we're following the story of the clash, the clash of an Israelite king who is reigning. His name is Saul. But he rejects God, and that costs him. As a matter of fact, God has told him, clearly, this will cost you the kingdom. And yet there's an heir apparent that rises up in this clash, and that, that heir apparent is named David. And interestingly enough, we've read where David was in the court of Saul, helping Saul with all of his mental health issues. And not only is David in the court of Saul, but David also goes out and fights God's enemies. And as he does that, he begins to develop a following. People love David. Almost, almost everyone loves David. Almost everyone sees him as the leader, as the king. But what also has become clear, and Scripture says it a couple times, is that the Lord is with David. The Lord is with David. When the Bible uses that language, and it uses it occasionally, it means more than just David as just a, a lucky guy, or that David has all these unique skills. It tells us something more importantly, and that is God is working out his purposes through this man. And what's more, there seems to be something about David's heart. Because we all look at the outward appearance, but God always looks at the heart. And when he finds David, he sees a man after his heart. When you, when you hear David's heart, and you don't read about his heart a ton in 1 Samuel, in that story that we're reading. But then you flip over a couple books of the Bible and you open to the Psalms and you see David's heart, this heart after God where he desperately wants God to be treasured and loved by everyone. You see David's heart where he turns to God as his refuge and strength at most every turn. You see David's heart for God and how he humbles himself before the Lord and instead of trying to lift himself up above people. David's a special character in Scripture, but this man after God's heart is on the run and he finds himself in a city called Nob. And this seems like, uh, based on what we can read even from this story, it's an early place of worship. So the temple in Jerusalem has not yet been built. So it seems like a... a a sanctuary, if you will, where people come and offer sacrifices and the priest leads those. And the passage that David read just a moment ago, the priest is nervous 
David comes to town and the scripture says that he's trembling. He's worried because even being connected to David right now is tricky because Saul is hunting David down. And frankly, I'm not sure Ahimelech is really grateful to see David in his city. He knows this may be something difficult. And David tries to make some story plausible. He really bends the truth, fudges the truth. I mean, however you want to kind of work this out in a truth meter. He says, I'm on a secret mission for the king. And like nobody can, nobody can know about it. That's why I'm here by myself. And I had to leave and, and we, we don't have any food for the, the people with me. And do you have any food? And I, I'm on the king's business here. I, I, I'm on a mission for him. And the Himalek, the priests, I, I only have the bread, but that's like holy bread. It's consecrated bread. It's the bread of the presence or the showbread you may have learned about. I, that's all I've got. And David says, I'll have that. But a spy is there. In verse 7, we find out like one of the people in Saul's like, leadership and in his administration is right there present. And David knows this is a problem. David has another request. And like, ah, I left so quick, I didn't have a weapon. And I don't know whether he knew of a particular weapon that was at Nob. I, I think it's plausible. It's likely he did. Maybe that's why he chose this place to begin with. Ahimelech says, actually, we have a sword. You might be familiar with the sword. It's the sword that was Goliath's. David says, there's none like that. Yeah, I'll take that one. Give me that. He's trying to find food, trying to get some weapons, maybe trying to get some respite. The truth is, in chapter 22, you'll find out this whole, this whole trip to this city costs everybody in that city their lives. It's a tragedy. The whole whole city gets wiped out because of this. And I started with us thinking about the emotional toll of running and running and running because we have to realize David, we need some space for David walking in and making decisions in a pretty challenging circumstance here. When I hear all this, so David's not been forthright, he's not been honest with the priest there. So we may want to go, well, like class in session, let's look at ethical decision-making 101 and find out like what's right, what's wrong, how do you weigh this and that and the other? Did David do the right thing? Our first case study would be an Iron Age military fugitive. I mean, do, but the Bible doesn't go there. The Bible doesn't let us like pack, peel apart all the ethics of this. It just tells us it happened. If you're looking for a deep dive into it, David's ethical compass here, you're going to be disappointed. Was he thinking like, oh, I'm technically telling the truth? And was he going, I I don't know. This leaves me with more questions than answers in some ways. But in the questions and in the concerns and in the danger, I think God does have something to tell us. In all of that, here's what I think we're learning at Nob. In the city of Nob, David eats bread. In the city of Nob, David eats bread, and that may be like the most, the simplest point I've ever had in any sermon I've ever preached. So like I'm Captain Obvious here, 
what do you know, David eats bread. And, and yet I think there's something to be said here. Because what was Ahimelech's holy bread became David's daily bread. So we want to say, David, like, shouldn't you just told the truth? Shouldn't you just trust the Lord? And of course we should trust the Lord. But how challenging that gets, the more desperate we are. And maybe you're even tempted to say, David, do you even deserve to eat this bread? I mean, you're, you're, it's the equivalent of lying to the preacher while you're in church. Do you deserve, I mean, with all the deception, with all the lies, you deserve to have bread to eat. David doesn't deserve to be rescued, but, but wait a minute. This is a story of God's grace. If you're unfamiliar to grace, let me just remind you that it is by grace we are saved, not through works. It's a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. So actually, when we, we ask questions like, does David really deserve this? When do we ever deserve it? When is that ever the right word? Like, I deserve this from God. I love what Dale Ralph Davis says about this. When everything is scraped down to the bone, I receive my daily bread not because I'm godly, but because Yahweh the Lord is gracious. That's why we have anything to eat. Can I make things really, really simple today? And, and we need them this simple. Someone, some of us in here need it this simple. In a moment, we'll leave and we'll eat some meal at some point in time in this day. And in that moment, we will know God has provided a meal for us. And we will know that if he did not want us to eat, we would not have eaten. And the fact is, some of the the circumstances around that meal will be tough. Some of you are lonely. Some of you are grieving. Some of you are very frustrated. Even as you walk in the room, you're very, very tired, tired of all that you've been dealing with. Maybe you're asking, maybe David was asking, where is God in this? I don't see him. I I keep waking up thinking this has to change. This must change. And I don't see it happening. Where is God? And maybe one day, maybe one day, God will bring a million good things into this life of yours. Maybe. But for now, could you bow your head and say, thanks, Lord. You've given me food to eat. For now, could you look at this frozen dinner? I don't mean to be disrespectful. This cold pizza, this bologna sandwich, you care for me or I would not have food in front of me. This bowl of cereal or rice, this granola bar, this is from you. You want me to live. You're not through with me yet. I wonder if it needs to get this simple for some of us in the room today to say, we live because God gives us food to eat. And sure, we could go buy $500 worth of groceries at Costco. But that doesn't diminish the fact that if God did not will that we would have food to eat, we would not be eating. He cares that much about you to sustain you today. His purposes are not done. The story moves on, and the connector here is the interesting connector, and that is that it says in verse 10, so David read earlier up to verse 9. Let's, let's continue on in our reading. Hopefully the scripture's still open in front of you. 
Here's the transition. David arose and fled Nob that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. This is the land of the Philistines. And the servants of Achish said to him, we know this guy. Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. So David goes to Gath to see. Maybe he can find some political asylum there. Maybe just some protection. Saul's chasing him down. So he goes to a Philistine camp. What is odd about that is we already have been introduced to this town of Gath, and we know a very significant resident of the town of Gath, and that is Goliath. I don't know all of what is going through David's mind where he thinks going to Gath will be a better place than the arrangement he has. And the Philistines are are putting all this together, saying, oh, wait a minute. Like, shouldn't we be trying to take him out because he took so many of us out when it says, like, David has slain his tens of thousands. Some of those thousands are Philistines. What's he doing here? It says in verse 12, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. It's like that moment when you're in a not-so-good part of town and you're just trying to get out of the not-so-good part of town and you take a turn and you find yourself in a worse part of town. And David realizes wherever he is, this is not going to be a, a friendly place. So in verse 13, it has to be one of the most humiliating spots in all of Scripture. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended to be insane. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the man that took down Goliath. This is the next king of Israel. He pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks on the doors of the gate. I don't know if this is graffiti. He foams at the mouth, lets the the spit run down his beard. And Achish says to his servants, like, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? He's released from custody and he goes on the run. But in that, we read, didn't we? We read when David puts it all together, he's afraid, he's fearful. And the fear was real. And I just wonder, like, what advice, so think about it for a moment, what advice do you have for David at this moment? So David's afraid. Let's imagine you're there with him. What advice do you have for David, the fearful fugitive? Do you tell him, "Mm, fear's just an illusion? Is that going to help David? We got to get a plan, David. We got to get a strategy. We got to get out of this mess. Is that that what you tell him? Do Do you empathize with a man? I know it's a tough time can't imagine all that you're going through. Do you give him some tough love? David, we need to knock off the lion, okay? got to stop that stuff. I wonder what your advice is. Do you give him a Bible verse to memorize? Or maybe you tell him a story. David, you know, there once was this giant and this like teenager went up to the giant and like, this is kind of a giant in your life and let's, let's just knock down the giant. David knows that story. David lived that story. David knows all this. I I wonder what advice you would give. 
I wonder what you would feel if you were David. I wonder how my advice, your advice, would work even for our own souls. I will tell you, though, something happens in Gath for David. It's one of those really helpful times to look at another portion of Scripture that kind of runs parallel to it. And it'll be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But Psalm 34 was written at this very time. So I don't know who was speaking truth into David's life. But we actually get a glimpse into David's heart. Psalm 34 is one of those, it's hard to outline. If you're trying to find like three points in a poem, you don't find them so well in Psalm 34. It just is, it goes back and forth. It's David's feelings and the circumstances he's dealt with for months in his view of God. So I'd I'd actually really like to read it to you. It's probably my favorite psalm and has been for at least 25 years. The inscription of the psalm says this. This is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So we got the timeline right here. This is, this is what's going on. And with those kind of ears, let us hear this psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Because I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The the young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What, What man is there who desires life, loves many days that he may seek good? Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. But the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Yeah, many, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Something happens there. In Gath, David sees God. And I know he saw him in many other places, but in Gath, David sees God. And when we have fears, our fears can be a catalyst to ask and to think, what do I really believe about God? What do I really believe about God's power? Do I really believe our God rules the world and will I trust him? When we face our fears, when when they're pressing in, we really have to ask, what do I believe about God's justice? Will God do what's right? Will I trust him? About God's wisdom, does he really run the best plan in the world? And will I trust him? About God's goodness, is he really this good? Or have I just made all this up and will I trust him? Can I give you just a a, a small assignment today? And that is to take Psalm 34 and Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. Those are three that are written at this time. Psalm 34, Psalm 57, and Psalm 142. And maybe this is like your leftovers for the week. And maybe you read these a couple times throughout the week. And maybe you send them to someone who needs to hear that the righteous cry and the Lord hears. And maybe you talk to someone afterwards and you bring these verses up. And and the body builds itself up as we hear God's truth come to us. As David says, here's all that I'm going through, but I look to God and this is who he is. When you keep walking through 1 Samuel, we've looked at 21, but I, I, I do want to just cut a bridge over for a few moments into chapter 22. In chapter 22, the story continues, and we've got another connector word. David departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul, they all gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Think about this. I don't know that his brothers are really happy about all that's been going on in David's life, because now it's cost them, doesn't it? Now they've got to run. So that's part of the, the guest list. And then did you also notice who else comes down to David? The, all the distressed It's fun to hang out with all the distressed. All those who were in debt, here's the plan to get rid of the debt. Like, we'll just leave town and hang out with David. So I don't know they're so motivated to be with David as much as they're just trying to run from something. And all those who are bitter in soul, those that just are not happy with how life has worked out for them, that is who David is with. That's just what he needs, right? The riffraff to join him. That's just what he needs. He's got to provide for him. And what we're also told in verse 3 and verse 4 is that he has aging parents he has to take care of too. It says in verse 3, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. Again, David doesn't know the end of the story. He left them with the king of Moab, a rival nation, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. How humbling and unsettling. It's not easy to leave 
an aging parent in a place where you know they're going to be cared for. That's not even easy. But how much, how much more difficult is it to leave your parent in this kind of place? And then verse 5, then the prophet Gad said to David, you can't remain in a stronghold. You've got to depart and go into the land of Judah. So here David is on the run. He departs and goes into the forest of Hereth. One more time to run, one more time to flee, one more time to depart, one more time to get back off the grid. David will be great. It does happen. But it's going to take a while. David's in a cave. And I will tell you, in that cave, I do believe David finds grace. Where do you see that? It doesn't seem like anything's favorable in the cave. Where do we see God's grace here? I think there's times where we don't see it clearly when we look the first time. One of my favorite poems was written by William Cooper, and it's, it's been set to music, but the poem says this, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy, and they shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, but God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain this episode in David's life is like a frowning providence. That's a great word for it. It's almost as if God is looking and frowning upon David. But wait a minute, God is, God is showing his grace to David. It almost seems like this is just a bitter bud, but, but there is something that God is doing as he's taking care of David. God's not just doing one thing. God's doing a trillion things, and those things are woven together for his purposes. And if we love him, therefore, our good. That's what scripture says. And I think about this, and I think about who all came to David. And I think, what is God doing in the cave? God is taking care of David's future. David is brought an army of officers and generals who will go out and fight for him against God's enemies. David may not realize that now, but God is laying groundwork for David's future. In the cave of Adullam, God is finding, David is finding God's grace. God is taking care of his future, but God is also reminding David, I've, I also have worked in the past. Where, where, do I, where do I understand that? Well, why does David go to Moab? I don't think it's random. Could it be that his great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite? Could it be that the people of Moab may have a greater degree of concern and care because David has Moabite blood in him? Could it be when he needs his parents taken care of, he goes back to the people of Moab and says, can you help? 
Could it be that God all along orchestrated the heartbreak of Ruth and the heartbreak of Naomi, which was very, very bitter to them? Could it be that God was taking that circumstance only to unfold his purposes decades later to take care of David's parents in a safe place? Is God capable of these things? Surely he is. God has worked things out in the past. So we got the future, he has an army. In the past, God was working, but what about in the present? A person shows out of nowhere, and this is a, a prophetic man named Gad. We don't even know where he comes from, but he, he comes to David and says, you've got to move, you'll be caught here. And so God delivers a prophetic, protective word to David in this moment, taking care of him in the present. You see God provide, you see God preserve, God direct. That's what David needs now, and that's what God is being to him here. I don't want you to just be impressed with David's God 3,000 years ago. Do you know this God of David? Do you know him in a personal way? Do you know who he is? God would not be content with us to just look at these stories and admire them from a distance. God is not interested in us thinking of himself as like a four-leaf clover. Yeah, I guess I need God in my life too. I guess I need God as my co-pilot too. Maybe that'll help me out a little. When God shows his grace in the most complete form, salvation and deliverance has to be personal, brought by a person. So God, the Son, comes in the flesh. And we see things that David didn't even see. Because we know the Lord is our refuge, but we know that refuge comes in Jesus Christ. The Son of God on an eternal rescue operation for sinners like us. So I read a passage like Romans 8, a very familiar passage. I think all these things are true of David's God in the Old Testament, but we have a fuller picture of what it means to be rescued and delivered. Can I read Romans 8? It says in verse 31, what, what can we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also? If he didn't hold back Jesus, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring any charge at this point to God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What about tribulation? What about the distress you have thought about the whole message? What about persecution? What about famine, nakedness, danger, the sword, as it is written? For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 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 no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. Paul says, and I hope you can say, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. 
Can we connect some really important dots this side of the cross? God's protection and provision for us is not just from some generic God. Not just some idea that we all made up of God. But God's protection and provision for us come in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And I want you to know more than anything, the love of God in Christ for you. And if you've not yet met him, I hope you'll give us the privilege of at least having a conversation about that. Any of the pastors, any of the the guest service workers, people down here up front afterwards, if you don't know him personally, if God is just kind of a generic label for a bunch of ideas to you, I want you to know there's something more personal that you're missing out on, and that is Jesus Christ. You can call out to him, and you can believe that what he did on the cross was for you. Yeah, and in the cave, David found grace. And here in this place, we find amazing grace as our, as our eyes go again to the cross, to our great high priest whose name is love, who lives and intercedes for us. Can I ask you to bow your head? And ask us just to think through what it means that David found grace and that we can find it here as well. Take a moment and thank God that because of the cross, God is for us, not against us. And if God is for us, then then who could ever be against us? Oh, Father, we do thank you for a look into the life of your servant, David, who was up and down and all around. His following you wasn't perfect. Ours is not either. He didn't deserve grace. We don't either. But you watched over him. You'll watch over us. Strengthen our hearts. Give us courage. Give us a reminder that this life is not about us. It's about you and your love. For the person that is uncertain of that, I pray they might know it and leave here more certain than they came in. Do all this so that Jesus is magnified. Do all this, the work of your spirit, and keep working on us, Lord, all throughout the week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.